Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in the program by the host and the guests are their personal opinions only. Remember, feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Managing Director of State Street Digital Assets. Good morning and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management. And for three years, my partner and I in this in this podcast, Nitin Gower, the CTO of Portal Asset Management, is with us today. Hey, Nitin, how's it going? Hey, Derek. Uh, going great. I'm back on my travels again. I'm back in Asia. I'm in India. And take care of a few things, and I took time to understand a little bit more about the banking and, and capital market systems here. But looking forward to having another exciting week. I know we're a little behind. That's because we all were great traveling, and I'm sure you had a conference today that you should you'll share what you've learned. But I'm glad that we're able to do this despite all our travel challenges. We make time for this. So to me, I, I really enjoy the, our conversation on a weekly basis, Darren. So Nitin and and our viewers, because we are a media empire. We, we are occasionally a day late and, 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 and due to the fact that this is not a paid gig, so to speak, we have to shuffle it around a bit. And I've been at a two day conference. You've been traveling, as you say, through to, through to India. But the great thing about that is, of course, we update on our travels and our conferences, et cetera, et cetera. The two of us are going to be in token 2024, 2049 in Dubai in a matter of weeks time. So that'll be fascinating to report back on what's yeah. happening there too. But everybody listening, of course, the market is moving forward and we've seen a retracement. The market's currently sitting at about 2.53 trillion. Just to keep you an update, those that have been listening for some period of time, some 12 to 18 months ago, it was sitting below a trillion dollars. It's risen, you know, two and a half times over that period of time. Bitcoin still dominates at 52.1% of the market and Ethereum dominates at 16.7% of the market. I essentially, we as fund managers, refer to that virtually as the beta of the market because it's just, it is, it's the main turnover of the market that's occurring. Solana's up at $198. Now, what's interesting, of course, is we saw Bitcoin get to about 71, 72,000 by memory and it dropped down to, well, in the low 60s. And so we saw a very substantial retracement that occurred and what tends to happen is the alts, the altcoins, the alternatives to Bitcoin, really drop back in an exaggerated volatility to that. And so I wanted to first just chat about the fact that Bitcoin is quite vulnerable to, to manipulation still, despite the enormity of the, of the exchanges. Yeah. It's very easy because everything is on chain. It's very easy for the whales to look at it and go, we can see the leverage position on Bitcoin at the moment. And when the le leverage position gets higher and higher and higher, these, excuse the Australian term, these buggers turn around and say, right, well, we can start selling down a little bit because what happens is it triggers margin calls. And then as the margin calls drop, they trigger more margin calls. So when the market starts to get over leverage, this often happens and Bitcoin has a solid retracement, which is what's happened in, in the last four or five days. And so 
we know that to be the case in regards to the, the margin lending because we can see it all on chain. Quite fascinating, quite different to a lot of other marketplaces. Okay. So in that, in that retracement, of course, that's, that's price, not value. What would you like to say about that, Nitin? Yeah, no, no. I think that's such a, such a great point, Derek. And I think to me, it's not just, I mean, as I view this and as we view this in, in discussion of our investment committee conversations and, you know, to, to, to better understand the industry is the context of not just global macro, which is what's happening outside of the crypto ecosystem that impacts. Again, ETF is a perfect example, right? This massive liquidity coming in and making accessible, making Bitcoin as an accessible asset class to a big number of RI registered investment advisors eventually on behalf of their clients. So there was a whole thesis that at some point when the inflows begin to pause or decline or take a, you know, take not be as exuberant as they have been in the past, I would say seven to eight weeks, then you would begin to see some of the enthusiasm die down. And that's when a lot of traders would take advantage of that high end and, and have that sell position from that perspective. So that's one thing that I think has, um, has, has driven the conversation in the pricing, the price movement of, of Bitcoin. But then you also have the Michael Saylors of the world, as you know, is drawn many debt instruments and debt notes and convertible notes to mm. borrow money, to buy more and more Bitcoin, which mm. I think there was a interesting statistics where he's now reached 1% of all Bitcoins in existence is now with, with MicroStrategy. So there's yeah. like a lot of, I would say, and, and then of course, uh, Uncle Larry, Uncle Larry who has been a, a big supporter from from BlackRock perspective, a lot of conversation of expanding that empire to making Bitcoin ETFs, you know, as a part of the strategic sort of global fund, which is a huge thing because these funds are in hundreds of billions of dollars that will have yes. an exposure to a new asset class. Uh, so I think not just making it available as an asset class, but also the narratives around the financial narratives around these things. In ETH Denver, which is the conversation we had last week, Derek, besides the financial aspects and market aspects and price movement, uh, a lot of enthusiasm on Bitcoin layer two protocols, which is the success that Ethereum has seen with a massive exponent. And I believe we, we are planning to talk about Ethereum layer two yeah. in this in your podcast. But I think that Drawing from the inspiration, drawing from this massive growth Ethereum has seen with layer two protocols and the that fueled the massive ecosystem of DeFi and NFTs and DeFi social protocols. There's a lot of uh, projects who are ripe and launching on, on Bitcoin to reduce the cost and increase the speed of Bitcoin protocols. And I think that will only help the financial narratives, in my opinion, because technology is definitely drives a lot of innovation and innovation leads to, you know, a lot of value creation. So I'll pause here, Derek, but, but I think all these are pertinent perspectives that we have to consume, absorb, but also use market data and our instincts to, you know, to, to draw conclusion. But to me, like any other sort of crypto enthusiast and, and professional in this space, it's a long only game for me, at least. Yeah, that's right. And look, it, the other thing that's interesting is that People still feel the urge to draw upon the past as if it's an accurate predictor of the future. Now, that's never the case in a perfect manner in any marketplace, but in this marketplace, particularly not. Because if we look at 2017, when I first appeared in this marketplace, there was Bitcoin and there was Ethereum. There was no such thing as decentralized finance. There were some early DeFi ICOs that were appearing on the scene. There was certainly no such thing as render and AI and, and the metaverse hadn't been created into this yeah. space. 
you know, play to earn wasn't in existence, the concept of, of real-world tokenization of assets. None of it existed. Yet price existed and price was going up and down. So people looked at the past and said, now look back there. If this was repeated many times in the future, you see what I'm saying? It's just not the same market as it was X number of years ago. And the other thing is, is a growing market that, you know, back then might have been capitalized at, you know, a few hundred million, a few hundred billion dollars is, is now sitting at 2.53 trillion dollars and did get to a, a, a peak of north of three and a half trillion. I can't remember the exact number. And so you've seen a market, you know, go through its really volatile stages. It's getting more mature. When markets get more mature, volatility starts coming out of the markets. And what we know is that the early volatility of Bitcoin, by example, was a factor of, of going north of north of 5,000% in the first bull runs. And then the second bull runs north of one and a half thousand percent. And then in the third bull runs, I don't know this number, but it's north of a few hundred percent. And so what we're seeing is the volatility drop out of this asset class in regards to particularly, you know, Bitcoin showing the maturity of, of the asset class. And Nitin, I think you would agree that if you've got that position, plus you now have the arrival of the sovereign trusts, the superannuation companies, the, the public listed treasury, cash and treasury that are capable of deploying 1% to Bitcoin, all of a sudden sitting on the side rails, you've got, you've got investment organizations with trillions of dollars under management in total right across the entire horizon that are looking at this. So there's going to be a there's going to be a reduction in volatility, but I also think an increase in demand. Does, does that all make sort of ring true yeah. to you? I don't, it, I, it, it does, and this whole notion of uh, price volatility coming into, under check, as you as you mentioned, and we looking at the combination of beta around Bitcoin, a lot of combination in that context, Eric. That you know, I mean, while we've seen slowdown of funds, especially I think last week reported that. You only had close to about five or fifteen million coming into Fidelity, which was the lowest it's ever seen. And but the the notable factor is there are close to thirty four hundred different ETFs, Derek, and about one hundred fifty of them have reached the market cap. It took them two years, what Bitcoin yeah. did in seven weeks, wow. to reach the market cap that it did. Yeah, and yeah. I think that is a remarkable statistics for us to look into, not just the enthusiasm, but but you also have to realize, Derek, that we begin to slowly see, like for example, I think Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley have recently allowed access to their investors, for their investors into this new asset class. But there's still a lion's share of RIAs, the registered investment advisors, who have not yet opened up access to this asset class, which to me is still yes. a massive sort of inflow yet to be realized by yes. the ecosystem. So there's a demand supply equation here, but there's also an equation of having which has significant impact. And historically, as you know, Derek, and we've discussed this in our in portal asset management sort of conversations is, you know, what is the impact of halving on price, which again, we are on the fourth halving at the moment. And uh, generally you'll find that, you know, it's about six months lag before you begin to see impact of having on price movement because the industry has to readjust to its investment into the in raw the materials, which is basically about? mining equipment. No, no, I'm talking about Bitcoin in general for mining it, it takes about six months for it to begin to impact on the real uh, you know price of bitcoin you know per se and i think that 
we are seeing a, a little bit different trend this time, and maybe because it's coupled with mm. the demand side of the equation, the demand has massively been high because of institutional investors. Mm. And yet mm. we find some notable whales taking advantage of this you know, volatility and making the right moves in terms of you know, buying, buying low and selling high and, and taking advantage of that arbitrage opportunity that they have, which to me is fascinating mm. that it's not, no longer just a halving and supply narrative. It's also a demand narrative, which is, which is taken over yes. this, this time around, I think. Yes. And, and if, you, if you were a chartist and constantly watching history, then you would tell everybody two, two things. One, you would tell them that, that there's going to be a, a retracement, a substantial retracement before the halving. And after the halving, there will be Bitcoin hitting a new all-time high. Well, guess what? Bitcoin hit a new all-time high before the halving this time. And before halving. The other thing is that... Exactly. Yeah, before the halving. Yeah, yeah. And, and it is your point, Nitin, because the demand curve the demand chain, the demand side of the ledger was just so much greater than it has been in the past. So it makes logical sense that you might get that earlier run. Now, the other interesting thing, of course, is for those that love to watch the charts, you know, there's normally a period of, of 18 months plus, there's a certain number, that sees an altcoin, in other words, non-Bitcoin, bull run post the halving, right? Now, the crazy thing here, Nitin, yeah. is that people are turning around and saying, so the entire market will stop and drop away on the 18th of July. Like, like everybody knows this date. I mean, as if it's just going to stop on the 18th, right. in which case, I tell you what, we That's need right. to be out on the 18th of May. And other people need to be thinking of that too. So I don't think this history is going to play out in that same level of volatility we've seen in the past. There's too much market narrative around it. And that doesn't mean it's not going to be volatile. I just think it's going to be less volatile. So anyway, there's our yarn about the price. And maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the great tech that's just happened with, with the Deacon, you know, yeah. layer two protocol work and, and, and what impact that's going to have in regards to transactional value and also, of course, in regards to the market maturity. Yeah, so I think you meant Duncan upgrade. Duncan upgrade, is, it's again oh, a combination of two words. As, as we mentioned last time, you keep saying that, that Deacon, and it's okay, we'll accept Deacon, Derek. But you know, what's interesting <laughs> Thank you. is the, existent, the existence of, uh, of, of layer two protocols in general were to solve what layer one could not. So layer one was extremely mm. heavy, it was expensive, and as more and more application came online, the cost of processing became higher, and that's essentially what's translated into a gas fee, and gas fee was, let's say, for 200 bytes of data to be processed, you needed to spend 16 gas, and now it's down to a fraction of one gas, which is the change of what the recent Duncan upgrade has been. But what's interesting to me, both from technology standpoint, and just for a refresher sort of to the audience, right, the recent Duncan upgrade, which featured about nine Ethereum improvement proposals. So these are proposals that the community presents to make sure the protocol is resilient, it's fast, it's secure, all the good things that needs to, to happen. And it represents, I would say, Derek, most significant milestones since the merge that we saw last year. So merge was a big shift, as you know, from proof of work to proof of stake. The idea was to make Ethereum deflationary because there was all kinds of challenges of proof of work in terms of transaction times and so on and so forth. So they made, they made the shift last year. And the focus on one of the proposals, which is the EIP 4844, which is known as proto-dank sharding, which, which sort of significantly decreases the fees on layer two you know, protocols. And the idea behind layer two is, as you know, and there are technical reasons for it. 
that the DeFi smart contracts, the automated, the automated market makers, the stable coins, just to mention a few, are so interconnected, Derek, that it's no longer possible to split the chain into independent shards. Because the original thinking of Ethereum was, let's go and take this sharding mechanism where I can take all these different shards and process transaction in parallel, yes. individually, and bring, mm. them, bring them home. But the fact that they all became independent chain the ability for you to provide a verification validation framework for the interconnected nature of DeFi ecosystems were so complicated that they could not really go down that path of really creating those all these multiple shards, which was the conversation that we would have in 2017, 2018. But they introduced something interesting called blobs. And without getting into the technicality of blobs, I would say, Derek, is that they were trying to address a addressable sort of fee market structure for blobs to say, the you know there are temporary memory carrying data about the transactions particularly those related to layer two networks and the idea is that the layer two networks have a certain window where their validity can be challenged and after the, after that window passes the transactions are meant to be confirmed and the idea now is that all the data would always remain in chain and blobs allowed for uh, the protocol, the network to be able to, to throw the data away after the, the the transactions were confirmed, because after transaction confirmation, there was really no need to keep the data around. And so to achieve this, few things, which I think was sort of interesting, right? That every byte of data, which is interesting stat on layer two that's stored in Ethereum cost about 16 gas, so 16 gas, like 16 guays. And introduction of blobs, which is a new fee market designed for the blob data groups brings it down to one per byte of data stored. So from 16 gas to one gas, which is like a small subset, subset of the small, smallest unit of, of measurement uh, of fee structure in, in, in Ethereum. And I think this is significant in, in two things, Derek. And I'll say this and I'll pause that introduction of blobs creates two distinct marketplaces. So it creates a new economic imperative uh, one for layer one execution and another for blob, which means that I'm going to submit the transaction and Ethereum as a layer two will submit, will, will take this proposal and process transactions. But now I can pack in more transactions given the fact that I, I don't have to worry about storing the blob. And second thing is that the separation between the execution and data on the blob sort of insulates the blob fee from congestion with Ethereum network because now you're creating two different marketplaces one marketplace is what do I do with Blob? It's what layer two will assume. And what do we do during the peak usage? And when the high volume goes up, uh, the ability for Ethereum to process transactions really significantly goes up only because of the mechanics of how data is, is disseminated. Mm. So by removing this technical jargon, the idea there is they've got creative with ensuring that the core of blockchain that governs the verification validation is simplified and all the unnecessary data is thrown away after some time and the network doesn't have the burden and because network doesn't have the burden the people submitting transactions don't have to pay the fee for it but my question then becomes what do layer two do if, if ethereum is so so fast and so cheap but this technique of blob can only be implemented by layer two protocols which is super interesting in that perspective that it's making layer two significantly economical for them to process transaction, mm. which again, I think Ethereum, as you know, Derek, has been under tremendous amount of uh, competitive pressures from not only uh, the Solanas of the world, which I think, as you know, surpassed yes. the transaction volume this week, 
yeah. on the network. But at the same time, it's competing now for this massive ecosystem between Bitcoin and other emerging layer two protocols. But I'll pause here, Derek, to see if some of that made sense. But I think you also heard something today in the event you're at. So share a little bit more about that. As sure, well. sure. Hey, look, I, I've got to tell you, this, of course, all this relates to Porsches and mo many things do. And so, you know, if you look at Porsches course, in the 1970s, right? Of course, you the right? car analogy. <laughs> um, they, they were a slim, lightweight, thousand kilogram car, okay? And, and, and very engaging to drive. And, you know, and, and like many of us, the older they get, the larger they get. They just get bigger and bigger. So Porsche's now like 1800 kilograms, they're half the width, etc. This is the inverse of that. Software tends to do the inverse of it. Once it's built its code, as best the coders can do, they put it out there and then they work out elegant ways to make it work faster, cheaper, more effective. And in this layer one and layer two protocol, they had two challenges uh, in regards to the, the cost. One is the speed of transaction and the other is the storage of data. And what you're saying here is that they can restore less data with the with the blob system and, and the transactions now can be made much faster with the support of layer two protocols. Now, where does that sit in the entire ecosystem? It really sits here, back again to the fact that layer zero are the mining equipment that's running layer one protocols. Layer one protocols are the infrastructure that's running the entire system. Layer twos now are improving the speed of that. Layer three is a DeFi, let's just call that the entire finance and banking industry. Layer, layer fours, web 3.0 or the new, you know, read, write, own, stroke, earn section. Now, this is just getting built out in front of us. And this is another important part of this multi-stack technology that's getting built out in front of us. And it means that the industry goes faster, better, less expensive, and, and accordingly, it moves quicker. And now, I have to take it back to the irony of this. Price, which is what you pay, versus value, which is what you get, is actually That's having right. a very positive effect on value at the moment. And that is that we're now seeing conferences move ahead all around the world, good attendances of those conferences. We're seeing projects getting up and starting. We're seeing a lot of the sort of build in, in, the, in the bear run coming to fruition, which is great. I just had the, the pleasure and the honor to attend and speak at WA Web 3.0. And so WA Web 3.0 is WA West Australian, you know, web, pro, uh, web conference and put on by a very charismatic and enthusiastic professor, uh, Dr. Andre Gadas. And he, he has been a Bitcoin educator and facilitator for some period of time. Very keen to get Western Australia relevant in the world of, of not just the multi-stacks that I, we just talked about, but also in the AI, which is gonna hang off these stacks off to the side and with IoT devices that'll hang off the stacks to the other side, so to speak. You know, so, you know transport as a service, which is all gonna intermingle with this blockchain driven economy that we're talking about. And, and his vision is that this is going to really engage straight up into the northern time zone for a Singapore, Hong Kong, and you know Jakarta, KL, etc. And and that's superb because we actually had the head of the Singapore MAS sector down Spender? here. Yes. Okay. Yes, and we had him. Spender was there. Yeah. Good. Yes, presenting today, and and I had a long meeting with him yesterday, and they and and there's been an agreement signed between Singapore and Western Australia to enable this brotherhood 
to occur, this alliance to occur with the sort of the space that the, the, the resource and capabilities that Western Australia has that in that case, Singapore doesn't, and, and the Singapore investment money, all moving this forward. This would never have happened in a bear market, Nitin. Would have been talked about and theorised about, but it's when the market price is now up and running that, oddly enough, confidence returns. And so we've seen that. And we had a number of really good developers speak at the, at the conference. And, and one of them, who spoke from Ample Fintech, talked about something I thought was absolutely fascinating. And that was what he defined as an approved ERC 3525 development. So that is, that is an Ethereum, uh, Ethereum is, it, is it Ethereum research category? Is that what ERC stands for, Nitin? Yeah, ERC is, so it's something like RFC, what used to be in the old technical internet era, which is request for comment. And this is sort of Ethereum request for comment. It's like a, a, a changeover. Essentially, it's, it's a proposal. So there's a whole hierarchy of things when you have a proposal, which is EIP, which is improvement proposal, that gets enough sort of momentum, becomes an ERC. ERC then has to go its maturity curve before it becomes uh, Ethereum standards per se. So, uh, you know, so that's typically how some of these things that are very, of course, a lot of more nuanced narrative to this whole thing in terms of, how, you know, how it, how it progresses. But that's Ethereum. And they have many such proposals or requests for comments where people begin to now, you know, and, and the idea is to remove all the kinks and remove all the, you know, any challenges that they may have in adoption of that, of that particular protocol. And I'm for, I've been following ERC 30, 3525. It's, so tell me more before I, I, I give my opinion on, on what did you learn and, well, I and, found and what are the thinking behind that in the Western Australian thing. And, and so this gentleman is based in uh, Melbourne, visiting Western Australia. And, and what they're doing is they're tokenizing wallets. Or another way of looking at it, they're tokenizing a container, which could be a wallet. And the intriguing thing about that is if you start stepping back and looking at this this landscape that's expanding like an explosion, we're seeing things like real world assets getting tokenized, right? We're seeing things, obviously currencies, we're seeing all the particular tokens relating to businesses, all of those represent digitized assets. And of course, so do non-fungible tokens, depending whether they represent a bored ape or or a patent worth millions of dollars. All of these can fit in a wallet and you could then tokenize that wallet, fractionate it and, and send it out for investors to invest in it. I thought it was a fascinating thing to do. Or you could in actual fact, just simply pour all that in your wallet stroke container, own it yourself and watch the value of the single token that goes against the wallet that's owning all those assets move up and down. It's quite an intriguing package and I think it, it is a typical example of this, this explosion of side ideas that could take root and become really enormous or, or might yeah. not. But I looked at it as yeah. quite a utility opportunity and, and I was intrigued. What yeah. do you think of that? And absolutely. So, the, so one challenge which, which came up in this conversation, you know, in the past is you had ERC20, fungible token standards, that everything was fungible and everything looked you know, it's fraction, they all have the same value. And then you are 721, 720, which was basically non-fungible tokens, NFTs and so on and so forth. And there were a lot of use cases that drew upon the notion to say, look, I do need to have some capability that requires token to transition from being unique, which is the non-fungibility element of it, 
my identity, for example, is unique. It'll always be mine, even if people steal it and misuse it. My healthcare record, for example, is non-fungible. It'll always be mine. So there was a need for some use cases to transition from being unique to interchangeable, which is you know fungible and, and vice versa. So they want to have a standard that can actually take a shape. And your example of wallet could be something as similar to a fund, for example, that I it's unique to me. And suddenly I want to take that, whether it's an acumen of mine, and I think you talked about this in context of wallet or container, which contains certain assets and the asset has certain value, but they're mine. It's meant to be unique. That's a unique yeah. sort of element. Yeah. But what if I want to open that up for other investors? So this standard is meant to deal with the ambiguity of is it an NFT, is it non-fungible or is it fungible? Can we able can we use them interchangeably? And what's interesting yes. about the standard, and you know, to me, this technology, which okay, fine, you have some APIs and you call the APIs and do a few things. What's interesting is the economics elements of it. Because the way we value heirlooms and the way we value data, which is personal and non-fungible in many cases, it's different from the way we value gold or we value equities and securities. And so when you start doing the interchangeability on this, I'm still wrapping my head around. And to me, this is fascinating and confusing at the same time, because maybe because the value systems that we are used to dealing with today is so ingrained into us that we value things differently. And in many cases, this technology is trying to bring this all to a level playing field to say, hey, Derek, uh, and we've given this example several times in this podcast, Derek, that you have a healthcare record, which has value to someone. Mm. And the fact that you, you're on this Web3 era and you have the ability to own these rec data records, can you figure out a way to monetize this? Mm. That your non-fungible record, which was only meant to diagnose or provide a prognosis to an ailment of sorts, suddenly becomes a gold mine to convert them into a monetizable token. I think that's the, that's the thinking behind, behind that. To me, it's fascinating. And that's, that, to me, is true innovation. And I applaud the pundits and gurus who sat down to figure this out. And I, I, I wish I was just a fly on the wall during those conversations, though I've been keeping track of it, but I was not ingrained in, in, in the decision-making process that, that many of the ERC uh, standards go through. Mm, but well, truly fascinating. I, I it is fascinating. And, and what comes of this, of course, is what mankind's going to create from it. So this is just a tool. And, right. and the gentleman's name is Mike Meng at Ample Tech. And, and he has reached out to you via LinkedIn and, and is, is findable via LinkedIn. And so what he's created with just, just, just the, he's not intending to monetize it. He's just created the tool to enable these um, containers or tokenized wallets uh, to eventuate. After that, it's up to other people to turn around and, and create what they what they see as the opportunity of it. So, you know, maybe yeah. some of you might think that's a bit geeky or a bit techy. Um, others might already turn around and yawn and say, well, we've heard that before. But the interesting thing in this space is that it's so diverse. And when you see these fascinating little side creations occur, you can get a sense of just how much opportunity is getting built out into this space. And it's yeah. been built out into AI. You know, our fund is in, quite invested in a number of tokens in AI. We believe in that sector. You know, it's getting built out into transport as a service. It's obviously being built out into DeFi. What happens in DeFi now is extraordinary. Remember, we had that great interview with the gentleman from, from Injective where they were doing it like a WordPress 
layer one protocol for people to DIY their own decentralized finance offerings. These are incredible opportunities that are occurring. And again, yeah. moving at the pace of dog years, you know, nine years in one of our years, yeah. uh, normal years. So anyway, fantastic. That's I mean, amazing. We, and we I think, you know, we should, we should spend some time next on the next podcast, Eric, on a lot of innovation that have really happened, bear market is surfacing now. Yeah. And so you mentioned some of them, you know, in AI space, there's a these, you know, Web3 social landscape, super, super interesting. With yeah. What capabilities and abilities they're trying to empower the users with. Again, in the thematic sense of Web3, which is creator-led ownership economy of sorts. We should spend some time on that because that, to me, is where, if I can use the word alpha, you use the word beta, I'm going to use the word alpha, is where the alpha is because that technology capability allows you to be able to achieve uh, a lot of amazing, unlock a lot of value. Yes. And the question then becomes, is which are the few protocols that are able to be the next the Ethereum or Bitcoin or, 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 or Solanas of the world of that ecosystem per se. So you have ecosystem specific alphas that we should look into at some point. 100%. Like any decent fund manager, they should hold some you know, major beta of the market, the Ethereum, the, the, the Bitcoin, the Solana. But the alpha is where real effort is put to determine the next movement and the next evolution in this particular space. So fascinating, Nitin. Always great to catch up. Isn't it amazing, everybody, how the difference between price and value is played out and price has a sort of a very heavy bias towards, towards importance. But in fact, which we'll talk next week, all the way through the bull market, people are so bear market, people were, were building and maybe we'll talk about a few of those great projects they built, Nitin. Yeah, absolutely, Eric. And always, I mean, in preparation for this conversation, during this conversation, I think one thing I get out of personally is, again, I'm hoping the audience can sense it, is that curiosity. We are curious, we are figuring yeah. things out and I always learn something while we discuss and we try to tease things apart. So looking forward to next chat, I'll still continue to be in Asia for the next week and a half. I am going to, to Hong Kong. I am also going to Nepal. Nepal is a personal trip. But again, I don't think any trip is personal anymore, Derek, because you always are curious of what's happening. And I'm sure you encounter somebody on some trail who's curious to know more about, about Bitcoin and more to be a part of it. So I'll, I'll report back as I learn more during my travels, Derek. Fantastic. And we look forward to that. And Nitin, I think for the audience to get a sense of this, if you ever feel overwhelmed, I must say I'm going to share this. And that is that audience, guys, Nitin's knowledge of this space is extraordinary. And he often says to me, there's too much happening and it's very hard to keep track of it all, right? That's Nitin. It's hard to keep track of it all. And so if you think that this is a, a bit is. of a challenge, just take what it is, absorb what you can, drink as much as you can along the way. You don't have to drink the entire fire hose. <laughs> That's true. And, and the one thing though, Derek, my knowledge of cars have certainly improved in the last three years. I would say that. I would certainly Very say good. that, that I was a completely car novice, but hanging with you, yeah. I think I've learned so much more about cars and how to have, have a right analogy in context of crypto, so. Wonderful that that's, that's the case, Neil Nitten, you know, and not only that, may I say, it, it continues to improve your already exceptional personality and depth of understanding of the world. <laughs> All right, everybody. So on, on that note, 
We look forward to catching up next week. Of course, you um, please feel free to share this with uh, friends and colleagues and people with like-minded interest in this particular space. Uh, if you ever want to reach out to us, nitin at portal.am, Derek, D-E-R-Y-C-K at portal.am. We're delighted to hear from you and delighted to hear your comments. Bye for now. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you next week. Take care, Derek. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please contact Nitin Gower or myself on the emails displayed here or via our LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week.